Our first scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 15 through 21. Listen now for God's word to us. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live in you, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father. And I will love them and reveal myself to them. Our second scripture comes from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 22 to 34. Let us listen again for God's word. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, He who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all mortals and breath to all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, he now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which we will have the, he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, We will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. So as Paul is out on one of his missionary journeys, he finds himself in Athens, alone. In this place that is the bastion of Greek philosophy 
and pagan idol worship. He's there waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. And, and as he's waiting, he begins to wander about the city, you know, take in the sights, as you do when you're in a new place. Now Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that, just before this, that as he's going about the city, he was distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he does what any of us would do when we're in a strange place and feeling distressed. He goes down to the local synagogue to have some serious debate. Right, Because what could be more relaxing than that? I'm sure that's why Elizabeth signed up to be a representative at General Assembly, because she wants to unwind and have some good, healthy debate. Right. And after spending some time in the synagogue debating with the people there, he decides to move down to the marketplace to talk with anyone who will listen. But this isn't just any old regular marketplace with people peddling you know, the cheaply made souvenirs and the overpriced trinkets and stuff. The marketplace in Athens was also the center of city life. It was a place of commerce, a place of politics, a place of education, arts, religion, theology. All of this stuff happened here at the marketplace. So Paul knew exactly what he was getting himself into when he went down there. And some of the folks there, they're, they're really intrigued by what he has to say, and they want to hear more. Luke says that, all the Athenians and foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling and hearing something new. Evidently, this is what they enjoyed doing, Hear, hearing these people come in with new ideas and, and let them talk and debate about it. So we pick up in our story today with Paul at the Areopagus, this place of debate, this place of new ideas where people talk and converse, have discussion. And he has a captive audience made up of worshipers of all sorts of idols and false gods, this group of people whose temples and altars that litter the city have previously distressed and disgusted him. And he begins this speech by praising their religiosity. It's, it's kind of strange. He says, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. I think Luke kind of pulls a fast one on us in this story, the way he frames it. He sets it up so that we expect Paul to bring down the hammer on these Athenians, right? To tell these misguided Cretans just how perverse and off-base their worship of idols is. To put them in their place once and for all and completely destroy their entire system of philosophy and pagan worship. So when we pick up, this is the moment we've been waiting for. We're expecting him. We're on the edge of our seats waiting for Paul to just rip into him, to, to tear him apart. Instead, he says, I see how extremely religious you are. And he tells them about how he was going about the city, and he saw an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. And he tells them that he has come to reveal to them who that God is. He doesn't use it as an example of a totally backwards religious idea, you know, saying that, well, you people will literally worship anything. You even have altars to gods that you don't even know. He tells them instead, I know who that God is. Let me tell you about this God. In his speech, he even, he even quotes a couple of Greek poets. So he doesn't, he doesn't come in seeking to completely tear down 
their entire theology and introduce to them this completely new idea of God. He speaks to them in their own language, with their own ideas. Tells them that the God he's talking about is a God they've already felt and experienced, even without being completely aware of it. He tells them that this God, the one he's talking about, is a God that is already in their midst. It's a really remarkable speech in a lot of ways. I mean, instead of trying to start from scratch, he uses what's already there. He meets them where they are because he trusts that God has already met them where they are. Now, he's, he's very clear as well that idol worship is, is misguided and that there is a need for repentance. They need to get away from this. But he still works within their cultural framework to point out the ways that the God who was revealed in Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible, is already being revealed among them. You see, because Paul trusted and believed that there was nowhere that he could go on the face of this earth that God was not already there, already working, even in the most subtle ways, he understood that God was way ahead of him when it came to spreading the good news of the gospel. That wherever he was being called to preach the gospel, God was already there. Now this is a far cry from how we often tend to think about mission work and, and spreading the good news. I mean, I think our basic understanding is that there are places in this world, whether across the globe or even in our own neighborhoods, in our own backyards, where the gospel is not or has not yet been so therefore, it's up to us to take it there. We may not put it in exactly those words, but I think it's often implicit in the way we talk about mission. We see ourselves as those who have been tasked with bringing the light of Christ into the dark places. We are the bearers of the good news. But this doesn't seem to be the way that Paul operated. I think Paul really trusted and took seriously the words of the psalmist when he said, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. For darkness is as light to you. Paul understood that the presence and the spirit of God was far ahead of him, already at work in the lives of those that he was called to minister and witness to. Because God is always way ahead of us already working in those places that we perceive as pure darkness. Whether we find ourselves halfway across the world or going about our daily lives, our daily routines, trying to share the light of Christ with our friends and neighbors and co-workers, there is nowhere we can go, no one we can meet, that God is not already present, already at work, because God is always way ahead of us. So perhaps we should think about it then that our task is not to bring the gospel to places it is not, but like Paul, to be able to proclaim to people the ways that God is already present with them, already speaking to them in that small, still small voice, even if they're not fully aware of it yet, fully aware of what it means, or fully aware of who it is. In the gospel story that we read today from, from John, we see that 
that not only is God way ahead of us, but God is also alongside of us. The scene that we, that we read, is it's after the Last Supper, and Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. He's preparing them now for the events that will come up soon, his, his uh, arrest and crucifixion, but especially for what life will be like when he's gone. He's preparing them for his loss. And he tells them, he speaks a word of comfort to them. Among other things, he, he promises to send to them an advocate, a helper, who is the Holy Spirit. And here we get introduced to this kind of unfamiliar and strange word uh, called the paraclete. It's only mentioned here in this section of John and then once other in 1 John. Uh, and it, we usually translate it as something like advocate or helper, but the simplest, the most basic translation of this word simply means one who is called alongside or comes alongside. So one way to think of the Holy Spirit is as the one who comes alongside of us as our advocate, as our helper, the palpable presence of God that is always with us, even though we may not be able to see and experience Christ in bodily form. But the promise of the paraclete also comes with a command. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, Jesus obviously gave many different commandments, right? He, he taught a lot during his life. The Sermon on the Mount comes immediately to mind. We could also look at other teachings throughout John's Gospel to find some other commandments or teachings that might apply. But the one that stands out particularly to me comes on this very same night, just before this. In chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So you should all also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love one another as I have loved you. That's a tall order. That's, that's not easy. But perhaps what we see here is that one of the ways Jesus showed his love for us is by sending us the Spirit, by the gift of the paraclete, by giving us an advocate, a helper to be with us, the one who comes alongside of us, God's presence with us. So perhaps one of the ways that we can love one another as Christ has loved us is to be an advocate and a helper in a similar manner, to walk alongside one another, remind each other of God's presence with us, to be a paraclete for each other. I think that Paul was a paraclete that day in Athens, walking alongside the people, showing them how God was already present with them, how God was already revealing himself to them, rather than simply wagging his finger and condemning them for their terrible and false worship. God is always ahead of us, beside us, and within us. Calls us to walk alongside one another, pointing out to each other how we see God already at work, even in places and situations that seem shrouded in darkness. Tomorrow is Memorial Day, the day where we Remember all of our troops that have been lost in combat, that have been killed. It's a day of grief, a day of loss, a day of mourning. 
For many families, it brings back painful, difficult memories of loved ones who have been lost, of lives that have been cut short. An experience of loss is a universal human experience. We have all been there. We will all be there again. The longer we live, the more we lose. That's a simple reality. We will cry. We will grieve. We will mourn. But part of our call to love one another as Christ loved us is to walk alongside one another in our experiences of grief and loss. To walk alongside one another in our pain. To be a paraclete for each other. Mourning with each other. While also reminding each other of God's powerful presence that is always with us, even if we're not fully aware of it. So let us remember that no matter where we go, no matter who we meet, God is always ahead of us, calling us forward. God is also always beside us, going with us, calling us to walk alongside one another in our places of pain and loss. And when we walk alongside each other in this way, we fulfill Christ's commandment to us, and we love one another as Christ loved us. Amen.